Hi, this is Brian Standing, host of the Monday 8 O'Clock Buzz. Thanks so much for listening to the program. Hope you subscribe to our podcast. And if you really like what you're hearing, consider donating at wortfm.org. Many, but not all of you listening to my voice, will be hearing it over frequency modulated radio waves peaking 89.9 million times each second. The fundamental technology that produces FM radio is over 90 years old, but it's no less astounding for its age. In 1930, Albert Einstein addressed the 7th Berlin Radio Exhibition and expressed his admiration for the recently invented vacuum tubes. Going beyond the complex engineering oscillators and integrated circuits that make up a radio transmitter and receiver, radio waves have an inherent beauty, perhaps best described in the language of mathematics. Paul J. Nahan is Professor Emeritus of Electrical Engineering at the University of New Hampshire, and his new book, The Mathematical Radio, is out now from Princeton University Press. Paul Nahan joins us now. Welcome to the 8 O'Clock Buzz. Thank you. Glad to be here. So why did you decide to write this book? Well, I think the, the basic reason was that it was a book that I wish I had had when I was 16 years old and wondered about all the wonderful stuff that I saw uh, in my, my parents' living room uh, when I looked inside the radio. When I looked inside the big FM, uh, AM, FM radio console that was in, the, uh, in our house. And I always I wondered what, what made that thing work? How did it work? Uh, I didn't have anything I could read that would tell me about that. Maybe I didn't look hard enough, but I couldn't find anything. So three or four years ago, I started to think, I'm sure there are a lot of kids today, a lot of young people today, who are in the same quandary trying to find out how the, how the radio works, or for that matter, how their television set works, something like that. So I thought, well, I'll write the book. I'll I'll pretend I'm writing to myself across about 70 years of time. Now, now the that, book I wish I that, could have had. Now, that radio you looked at in your parents' living room, was that a, a vacuum tube machine? Oh, yeah. That, that was the thing that really caught my attention. I think probably catches nearly everybody's attention. When you look inside a, an old vacuum tube radio set, especially in a dark room, it's got that wonderful eerie glow from the vacuum tubes looks very mysterious. If you look at uh, if you look at some of the old science fiction films that Hollywood made, there's always a vacuum tube somewhere in the scene, uh, doing who knows what. But the people who made the film knew it would catch people's attention. It looks almost magical, and, and that's what caught my attention. And as we said in the introduction, it didn't only catch yours; it caught caught Albert Einstein's at the time. What made vacuum tubes so interesting to Albert Einstein? Well, uh, I think it had to do with the fact that uh, it, was, it, it was a means that uh, nobody had had until the invention of the vacuum tube to generate really high-frequency electrical signals. Uh, Einstein was particularly interested in that sort of thing because it tied in with his theory of relativity. Uh, the electronics and so forth, and, and the fact that electromagnetic radiation, radio waves, travel at the speed of light, which I think everybody knows plays a central role in, in the theory of relativity. Einstein, too, a lot of people don't, don't, don't realize this, despite his reputation for being a, a, a theoretical genius, was also a very practical guy. 
he is one of the holders of a patent for a refrigerator. That, <laughs> that usually catches people by surprise when they hear that. He worked in the patent office uh, as a young man. That's how he supported himself. Uh, so he was not oblivious to the to the merits of engineering, and uh, the vacuum tube is a, is a probably one of the most important inventions in the history of humankind. I think. Of course, I'm a little biased being an electrical engineer, but it's it's certainly in the top three or four. And vacuum tubes, uh, we don't see them anymore. What have they been replaced by? Yeah, they vacuum tubes have been replaced by little blobs of, of stuff that look like uh, plastic, sort of like a spoon that's been melted over a stove. They're very un, they're very uh, unexciting to look at. Their merits are, of course, is that they're very very small. You can make them so small you can hardly see them, um, and they use very little power. Vacuum tubes do require a fair amount of electrical energy to make them work. They get hot. Anybody who's ever touched a hot vacuum tube in a radio can testify to that. Uh, transistors, integrated circuits, and so forth all offer the, the benefits of being very small and low power. Uh, they also aren't very exciting when you look at them from, a, from the viewpoint of a 10-year-old. No, nowhere near as magical. <laughs> That's right. There's no mystical glow to them. So I, one of the things that you, you stress in the book is you talk about this sort of like intersection at this interesting point in history where you've got physicists and engineers and uh, mathematicians all sort of uh, you know, figuring out this like electromagnetic radiation kind of thing for both practical and theoretical reasons. And it seems like there's a little bit of sort of infighting going on there. You talk about... Uh, G.H. Hardy's A Mathematician's Apology, uh, and then you, in, as part of your um, introduction, you create these two fictitious professors, Tweedle and Twombly. What was going on there? What's happening there? Yeah, well, you know, uh, you know what they say about academics, that the battles are vicious in academia because the stakes are so low. Well, that's not really the case in science. The people who do science for a living as a profession are very smart people, very competitive, and uh, the infighting can get pretty brief, uh, pretty, pr pretty severe, uh, very quickly. People have their pet theories uh, that they want to uh, advance over somebody else's ideas, uh, and, and the battling can get pretty, can get pretty fierce. Uh, Hardy, uh, G. H. Hardy, was one of the great mathematicians of the first half of the 20th century. But he did have some eccentric views uh, about engineering. Uh, the story I always like to tell my students was that uh, he, he was very fond of sending people letters. He would, if he had, if he wanted to get in touch with somebody, he would send them a letter or a telegram, and would only use the telephone if if the mail would be too slow. He just didn't have much confidence in the new <laughs> the newfangled world of technology. Uh, so there was there was infighting between him and people who had a broader view about the the value of of engineering. So in the in the preface of my book, uh, rather than just saying all of that, uh, you know, just flat out saying it, I, I thought I'd dramatize it with my my two professors, Tweedledee and Tweedledee. Well, I have to look at my book. I forget the names. I was using the names that came from Lewis Carroll. Uh, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, uh, 
uh, I play a little play on those characters for my two professors, uh, battling back and forth about just what had happened in the world of electricity and how it developed. And I said it in the, in the mathematical department, the mathematics department, instead of the electrical engineering department, because the, I just thought it would be funnier for people uh, reading it that way for, in a book titled The Mathematical Radio. I'm hoping I didn't guess wrong on that. <laughs> well, I found it entertaining. So what is a high-frequency sinusoidal oscillation, and what does that have to do with radio? Well, uh, sinusoidal oscillations are, are in everybody's house. The, uh, the electricity that comes into your home uh, and out through the wall plug is sinusoidal. Uh, that, that just refers to the fact that it's a sine wave. It's a, a certain particular mathematical function that swings positive and negative in a regular way uh, at about 60 hertz. 60 hertz is the frequency. 60 cycles per second is the frequency in, in uh, home in the, in, in the United States. So that's for in electrical Europe, current. That's for electrical current. And that's a very low frequency. Um, radio waves, to, to, for efficient transmission of a radio wave from a say a radio station's transmitting antenna, has to be very high frequency for it to couple with space and, and be able to travel uh, through space to somebody's receiving antenna. Those frequencies have to be millions of cycles per second. And in fact, until the invention of the vacuum tube, this is what got Einstein so excited, nobody could generate waves like that. People, the, 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 the highest frequency of uh, uh, electromagnetic waves that could be generated were just in a matter of a few thousand cycles per second. With uh, vacuum tubes, people could suddenly generate waves at millions of times per second. So, for example, our station broadcasts at 89.9 megahertz, and that's 89.9 million times each second. That's right. That's right. That was unheard of. A uh, hundred years ago, people would have thought you were crazy if you said that you were going to transmit a signal at that frequency. And today, it's it's quite routine. So let's let's get into the, a little bit of the history of radio. The the first kind of radio that uh, was, was commercially available was uh, AM, or amplitude modulated radio. What is amplitude modulation? Well, it means that the, the, uh, the radio wave, which is generated, let's, let's take a, uh, an AM radio frequency of 700,000 cycles per second. 700 kilohertz. Uh, that's a steady sine wave, up and down, back and forth, plus and minus, 700,000 times per second. Then you modulate it, say with a human voice, somebody speaking or by playing a, a record of music. The amplitude goes up and down as the amplitude of the uh, modulating signal goes up and down. So you're literally translating the the variations of the amplitude of a human voice into the variations of the amplitude of the radio wave. So these are peaks frequency and valleys, right? Peaks and valleys? That, that's are... right. Okay. Peaks and valleys. Uh, frequency modulation does something different. It changes the actual frequency of the uh, signal without changing the amplitude. The amplitude stays fixed, uh, but the frequency changes. Uh, that's why FM... Uh, is has much better sound uh, qualities when it uh, is transmitted through space because the noise the, the noise mechanisms lightning bolts thunderstorms that sort of thing are amplitude 
phenomenon. And they get right on top of an AM wave. And how do you tell a thunderbolt from somebody uh, speaking loudly? It's very difficult. It sounds like a big bang when, when that happens. In frequency modulation, FM, the amplitude can change uh, without changing the information that's on the signal because the information is in the frequency, not the amplitude. So when we talk about frequency modulation or FM radio, and as we mentioned, uh, WRT is at 89.9 megahertz, does that mean that sometimes it's a little more than 89.9 megahertz and sometimes it's a little less and that, that, that it's moving back and forth and averages out at that second? That's right. Okay. That, that's exactly right. The FM stations have uh, 200,000 hertz bandwidth, if, you, if, you, if I can use that term. The frequency can vary over that interval, up and down, around the 89.9. If, if your signal is not modulated at 89.9, then you're generating a wave exactly at 89.9 but it's, uh, megahertz. But as soon as you begin to speak, the frequency will go up and down around 89.9. And it goes in proportion to the sound of my voice. That's right. Exactly. The amplitude of your voice, the, the, the amplitude of your voice in, that's coming out of your, your mouth in, in sound waves is translated into variations in frequency electrically for transmission from the antenna. Exactly. And then it, it works in reverse of that in your radio receiver. The variations in frequency that your antenna picks up at home or in your car radio gets turned back into amplitude variations that your ear can hear. And it, the bottom line, finally, when you're listening to a radio, AM or FM, it, it, you, you eventually have to put oscillations back into amplitude so that your ear will respond to them. One of the other interesting things I think about AM radio that anyone who uh, grew up listening to car radios at night can attest to is that uh, AM radios signals can skip long distances. Um, you know, you, you can pick things up from, you know, Cuba or Latin America or things like that. Uh, how does that process work and why doesn't that work with FM? Well, uh, with AM radio, you can skip bounce off the ionosphere, which is a layer of... Uh, in the atmosphere, high, uh, high up in the atmosphere, that reflects radio waves back down to Earth. So you can be transmitting from a point on Earth, signal goes up, hits the ionosphere. It's like, it's like throwing a rock at a pond. Uh, you can, if you throw the rock or pebble at the pond at just the right angle, it won't go into the water, but it skip bounces across the water. And it can actually go quite a ways away from where you threw it, uh, from the point from which you threw it. Same with radio waves. They can skip bounce off the ionosphere and come back down to Earth quite a ways from the original broadcasting antenna. Uh, FM works at much higher frequencies. Uh, it, whether a, a radio wave is going to bounce off the ionosphere uh, depends a lot on the frequency of, of the signal. FM waves are much higher frequency than, uh, than AM waves. So just exactly how far you're going to hear an FM station is a little bit up for grabs, but it isn't as much as it would be for AM. You talk a lot about the early history of radio, and uh, you know, there's there may be a sort of sense that um, you know, radio as it uh, you know as we've traditionally known it is sort of a an older technology. Yet we're surrounded by radio waves, and everything we you know, all the things we use, even digital 
cell phones and things like that are using radio waves. Um, That's right. Is it, so what is, the, what is the future of radio? Well, I think it's here to stay. <laughs> it's just going to change its, it's, going to change its complexion. Uh, at the end, the end of the book, uh, I mentioned the, uh, the excitement I had back when I heard the first radio transmission from the moon. When uh, this, that was a uh, radio signal in what 1969, and I predict that it's going to happen again when we hear the first human voice coming from Mars uh, by somebody who I think is alive today on Earth. I, who I, the first people to go to Mars I think are already amongst us, and again it'll be a radio wave. It'll be a radio signal. Um, even though it travels at the speed of light, it's going to take a long time to get here from Mars. But that's the way that that is the ultimate speed of communication. And so I think radio is here to stay. I think it's changing all the time. You can already tell that AM radio isn't the same as it was back in the 1930s or 1940s. Uh, the programming is completely different now. There are no there's no radio dramas. Uh, comedy shows or anything like that on radio. It's all, uh, you know, uh, advertising, uh, radio political commentators uh, yelling and screaming at each other. I, I hardly ever listen to AM radio at all myself. I just tune in satellite radio in my car and listen to golden 50s uh, <laughs> music. <laughs> right, or listen to a podcast over Bluetooth which uses... Radio waves. Well, that, that's right. Do that, too. I, I have to admit, I, I, I do that a lot. All right. We've been speaking with Paul J. Nahan, author of The Mathematical Radio, and that's out now from Princeton University Press. Thank you so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock bus. Thank you.